Today's episode is brought to you by Pokemon. It was years before I heard anybody say, oh, Battle Network's just Pokemon. Yeah, sure, I defeat enemies and I gather weapons that I trade with my friends, but like, minus the connectivity thing, defeating enemies and gathering new weapons has always been Mega Man's thing, so the comparison always felt a little bit strange to me. At least I'd like to have said it strange, but it's a little less hard to shake that comparison for 2003's Mega Man Battle Network 3 White and Mega Man Battle Network 3 Blue on today's episode of What Am I? My podcasting for. Hello, and welcome to What Am I Podcasting For? My name's Garlisle, and this show is the show where I chronicle my attempts to play through the entire Mega Man series, from Mega Man 1 to Mega Man 11, and as many of the 100-plus games in between as I can. And today, we are tackling what many would call the highest point in Battle Network's life, Mega Man Battle Network 3. You will find I don't agree with that, but we'll explain why as we go. I'm going to trust that you've listened to the episodes on Battle Network 1 and 2 at some point, because I'm not going to explain the basics, because once again, we have a lot of story and events to get through, so I'm just going to be getting right into it. Battle Network 3 begins on, once again, a fairly average day for Lan and his friends, this time introducing one of the main plot lines that's going to stretch for about 60% of this game, and also provide filler and opportunities for tutorials and all that stuff, that is the N1 Grand Prix, an actually public net-battling tournament that Lan and his friends are hyped up about. In our tutorial section, we will see that the game is mostly similar to Battle Network 2. Most of the advantages that were put into Battle Network 2 were carried over into Battle Network 3. Things might look a little bit different on the surface. The graphical detail has upgraded again. There are some new systems to take notice of immediately as we begin playing the game. The first is that they have once again changed how the folders work. We are now limited to four copies of a single chip, as opposed to the previous game's five and the original's ten. And in addition to this, they have now sectioned off Navi chips from the standard chips. We now have standard chips, which are your everyday whatever. Then we have Mega Class chips. These have a starting limit of five per folder, and all of the Navi chips in the game are included in this category. But also there's a handful of extremely powerful non-Navi chips that are now also considered to be mega-class chips and essentially compete for space in that regard. We won't really see any of those until near the end of the game, but things in the previous games like Quick Gauge that would have qualified now sit in this category. There's also technically a gigachip category where you are allowed one gigachip at all, no mixing and matching, just one, and you won't even see those until the post-game, but they are about as powerful as it sounds. Also, we don't have power-ups for Mega Man anymore. We don't have a way to permanently power up his buster. We will find a new and interesting way to power up Mega Man, but for now that system is just gone, and the only permanent upgrades to Mega Man anymore are the HP memories, which are your maximum HP, and your default chip system regular memory that lets you select a chip automatically for every fight. And finally, the last change we will notice is what's called counter-hits. This system premieres in this game, and basically, if you strike 
an enemy at specific times in their attack animation as a finisher, you will receive an extra reward after battle in the form of bug fragments. There are specific vendors and traders late in the game that trade in these bug fragments for otherwise rare and unobtainable goods, which can be actually really powerful and valuable and well worth the effort to get these. The timing is a little bit awkward on different viruses, but it does get you to pay a little bit more attention and play a little bit riskier, and I actually kind of like that. And that is it for the grand list of changes that Battle Network 3 has made, at least on the surface, which is a much smaller list than the amount of things I had to talk about when we started Battle Network 2. Instead, we're going to be jumping pretty much right into the first scenario of the story, which is an excuse plot whereby Dex accidentally left his homework at school and oops, when we sneak in at night, turns out somebody's robbing a super critical MacGuffin program called the Tetra Code. We have to enter and complete Flashman stage as our first boss. This stage is set within the school in Battle Network 1, and so much of the design of it is actually very similar to that, but instead of numbered gates, this time we're dealing with flickering light systems, and when the lights flicker on, we're able to see various mystery datas and we have to find the keys among them. It's a very simple and straightforward and harmless stage, but it is the first stage. Similarly, at the end, when we fight Flashman, he's a fairly straightforward boss, easy to dodge attacks and all of that. One of his attacks literally cannot hurt you if you hang out in the back row, too, because it's sort of a melee range electric shock. The one trick he does have up his sleeve, which probably makes him a little more notable than the previous bosses, is that he can drop a couple bulbs on your side of the field, like light bulbs, and if you don't destroy them quickly, they will flash and stun you, leaving them open for Flashman's attack. Still easy, but has a little bit more up its sleeve than Fireman or Airman ever did. The aftermath of this scenario is when we finally actually learn something about our plot in this game and what's going to be happening. In part, Mega Man gets damaged, and we'll be dealing with that for the next chapter, but also the organization behind this theft of this apparently important code that was left in a random school computer is the World 3. They're back. Not really a surprise after we found out they were recruiting during Battle Network 2, but you know. And just in case you thought they were back under new leadership, no, thanks to a cutscene showing off the villains, we see very quickly, yeah, it's Dr. Wily again. Chapter 2 starts us off on a whole bunch of, like, tangled plot threads that keep jumping between which one we're paying attention to. We need Dad to go fix up our PET so that Mega Man stops glitching out after Flashman's attack. We need to go handle a second round of N1 Grand Prix qualifiers, which is just fetch quests and virus gauntlets. It's basically the license exams from the previous game. And we get to meet Dex's younger brother, who uh, apparently has been lied to all his life by Dex, who claimed to be the city's best net battler when Lamau Have You Seen Lan? I'll save you from all the running around that this involves, but effectively everything winds up with us going on a school field trip, you know, an entirely separate thing, to a nearby hot springs called Yokohama, mostly also to visit a zoo out there, but before we get to the zoo, Dad finally sends us the patch that we need for Mega Man and introduces the first actual big new feature of Battle Network 3, the Navi Customizer. The Navi Customizer is introduced in Battle Network 3 and is a feature that will remain for the rest of the Battle Network's main series. Essentially, 
It starts off as a 4x4 grid. In that grid, we are going to pick up various programs. These programs can be HP increases, increases to our buster stats and capabilities, things that change our encounters, such as drawing out specific types of viruses, things that give us new combat capabilities, such as surviving a fatal hit with 1 HP, or being able to float over terrain, or allowing us to equip additional mega chips in our folder, or start with more chips in our folder. All sorts of stuff can appear in the Navi customizer when we collect these as programs. These programs are then clustered of blocks that have to get slotted into the Navi customizer itself. Essentially, you have to Tetris yourself whatever layout you want. And there are specific rules to this. There is a command line that runs through the Navi customizer. One type of Navi customizer block wants to make sure that it is connected to that command line, and the other type, that is generally just stat boosts, wants to make sure it is not connected to that command line. In addition, every block on the Navi Customizer is colored, and you want to make sure that colored programs are not adjacent to other programs with the same color. That sounds like a complex set of rules, but it's actually very, very easy to learn. It's the actual, like, figuring out how to fit in everything you want and realizing you can't, and having to make that sacrifice that makes the Navi Customizer interesting. And I mean, you can kind of cheat it. If you want to ignore those rules I have set out, you can. However, this will cause Mega Man to develop a bug. These bugs can be relatively minor, like you might get a small stat penalty, or they can be somewhat major. You might have your controls messed with in battle, you might find that you're all of a sudden leaving poison panels everywhere you walk, putting you on a perpetual timer, but if you're okay with that, you can just play with those glitches and take advantage of the Navi Customizer in ways that you couldn't. And there are various ways to actually augment your capacity with the Navi Customizer. A couple specific quests as we continue through the game will expand our grid up until it becomes a 5x5, which is a significant amount of increased space. In addition, there's a variety of secrets to the Navi Customizer. If we buy a specific key item partway through the game, we can start entering additional codes, and we can use these codes to actively fix the bugs if we know the bug and the corresponding code. Oh, and if we don't have to fix a bug, we can still use the code screen to essentially enter an additional program. Some of them may actually come with penalties if we activate them. Like, you can enter a code that gives you five additional mega chip slots, letting literally a third of your folder be Navi chips. But if you do this, you will end up getting two less chips per turn on the custom screen, which is a significant problem. Oh, and if the pieces are a little bit too big for you themselves, there's secret inputs you can make on this screen that will actually permanently shrink some of the Navi customizer programs, allowing you to put more on your custom. And you're probably wondering, where do you find out about these codes and these inputs to shrink things? And the answer to that is, a handful of them are given to you by NPCs throughout the game, and that's it. The rest of them have all been collected from various game guides that were released, from other outside sources. Basically, they're traded around the internet, and the only way to really know probably like 90% of this is to go look it up. We'll get back to how I feel about that towards the end. For now, just know that the Navi Customizer is this really cool system idea that is basically playing Tetris to pick and choose what you value as a player in terms of passive abilities for Mega Man, and that's awesome. 
Anyway, back to Chapter 2. Like I said, our actual purpose of visiting these hot springs was to go to the zoo for some reason. Class field trip, I think. Suffice to say, we cannot have things go well for very long for Lan and his friends without some nonsense happening. So it turns out the zoo has an internal system that keeps the beast pacified through, I don't know, I think microchip implants or something like that. And somebody has naturally screwed with this for, I don't know reasons. I think it's related to a tetra code, but I don't even remember them explicitly saying it during this scenario. So we have to go into the zoo computer and do Beastman stage. This stage is pretty straightforward. The main goal is that you'll run into viruses blocking your way, and instead of fighting them, you have to go find programs that associate with those viruses in a way that causes a reaction. Like, you might get programs of cats to scare off viruses that represent mice. Or you might pacify a gorilla virus by bringing a program that just goes banana when you talk to it. Bring a tongue twister program to a parrot. You get the idea. It's a little bit silly, but kind of fun. At the end, we fight Beast Man, who is basically Slash Man from Mega Man 7, just under a different name. He's relatively quick and random in his movements, occasionally teleporting to do a variety of melee attacks at you. For the most part, his attacks are pretty easy to dodge. If you let him go for too long, he starts, like, rapid-fire barraging you with his claws and his head as separate parts. But as long as you are ready to move whenever he's suddenly not on his side of the field, you'll probably have an easy enough time. In the end, Dex's little brother falls off a radio tower, because, yeah, that happened, and Dex catches him, and I don't know, maybe Dex is kind of cool. Yeah, the, there is this whole thing. I'm just gonna do it now. There's this whole side plot with Dex about him moving back to Natopia to be with his little brother, and it's supposed to be, like, character growth and development and stuff that we're supposed to really feel for, but the thing is, and I'm just gonna drop this here, when he moves away, it takes like half a chapter before he suddenly returns to save you in a contrived moment in the plot. And when you realize that's what's going to happen and that he's just going to be right back there and then he'll be right back in ACDC town in the rest of the games, it's like, okay, but why all that? Sorry, I'm getting the parts of the story I want to complain about largely out of the way early for a reason. Chapter 3. Once again starts off with us getting involved in a whole bunch of side quests for the N1, but also for Higsby, who's back in town and has opened up his shop again, like in Battle Network 1. In addition, in his shop is a whole new feature that will once again be returning for all the future Battle Network games, the Number Man Trader. Despite what it says, this isn't necessarily a trade so much as it is like kind of a lotto system? No, not even a lotto system, a password system. Bring him an eight-digit number, and if it matches one of the ones he's got like stored in his list, it will give you a specific reward. Once again, you can get these by talking to NPCs. You can get some of these, I think, from the descriptions of key items that would otherwise be pointless that you pick up. You can find some of them scrawled on environmental objects, so you write them down, bring them back to the number trader, and get something. That's cool. And some of them were, like, in the anime, on the cutaways, when they're like, we'll be right back after these messages, and there was a little number scrawled on the bottom of the screen. Some of these are in entirely different Battle Network games. We'll get to network transmission soon, but some some of them are literally written on the environment in network transmission. Effectively, you're not going to know these codes unless you look them up on the internet. And if you do that, you can get some extremely powerful tools very early. <laughs> Such as the variable sword, which is a chip you normally can't get until way later. It's normally just a regular sword, but if you hold down the button instead of just pressing it and enter specific commands, you can transform its shape, including into like a multiple sword wave elemental attack that decimates fights by itself. And 
I said I was going to save this for the end, but I'm going to just do this rant right now. Maybe my least favorite thing that Battle Network 3 introduced to the games is the existence of arcane knowledge. The principle of stuff that you would never find in the game, would never learn about in the game, but that helps you in the game because you find it out somewhere else. I know, there's always been cheat codes, that's a history of it, but in this game, there's a lot of things. Shrinking Navi customizer parts and entering the extra codes with the mod tools and all that stuff, all of that is a lot of power. Battle Network 3 really amps up the you-should-go-look-this-up factor in a lot of ways, and that is one of my chief criticisms of Battle Network 3. I'm just throwing that out there. Oh, also a thing I dislike in Battle Network 3, as we do a chunk of the N1, we have to do a segment where we have a limited folder, and, like, that's not fun. Like, it's a predetermined folder, your previous progress does not matter up to that point, go fight some bosses with these crap chips we have given you. Don't like that either, but at least that's only a couple segments of this game. Eventually, our meandering around leads us to visit Mile, and we get involved in the exciting event of installing a new dishwasher. And this dishwasher proceeds to then be the source of our next incident as it traps Mile in a bubble that's going to explode, because that makes sense, and we have to chase down Bubble Man on the internet. Not even Bubble Man's stage, just we have to chase this dude back and forth through the internet a couple times. At one point, there is a section of the internet that we cannot cross because it is literally too thin for Megman to walk across, so we have to leave and find a program and eventually get help from a weird little professor who refuses to give us his name, but is apparently an expert in Navi customization. We will see him later towards the end of the game. I mean, we'll see him a few times at random throughout the game, but this is where I'm going to note him down as just a background character who's just occasionally around. But this is also where we get the next thing that I dislike about Battle Network 3, and to this series' credit, this is something they will realize was a mistake in Battle Network 3 and not do this again, which is the press program. At a handful of points in this game, there are various programs that you have to slot into Mega Man's Navi Customizer temporarily in order to progress the plot, or travel in through certain parts of the net, or do certain dungeon mechanics, and it's dumb every single time and just makes it fidgety to keep going back in and back out. Oh, also, as we're chasing Bubble Man down, because... At least this internet part has, like, a whole bunch of things happening to talk about, and is relatively quick. We are nowhere near Freeze Man. Yet. We also trigger our first style change here. There isn't really a big lead-up to it, it just happens after a specific NPC battle during this story, and it works sort of the same as Battle Network 2. It's an element plus a style that is based on the sort of chips or attacks you have been using up to that point in the game. There have been some mild tweaks to rebalance them, and some of their functionality has changed, so that as you level the style up, you now receive those functions as Navi Customizer programs that don't necessarily have to be used in the style in question. It is worth noting, however, that there are technically four additional styles in this game. One is the bug style. This requires you to do a lot of your fighting with your Navi Customizer actively glitched, and puts Mega Man basically into a permanent set of random glitches at the start of every battle. Now, you get two random beneficial effects each fight, like all of your buster stats are maxed this fight, or you get a ton of invincibility at battle start, but also you get one random negative effect, which could be something as small as like a steady but slow HP drain, or uncontrollable movement. The good effects can be very, very good, 
and are almost stronger than anything previous, but the bad effects can be significant too, so whether you want to go with bug style or not is up to you. The next two styles are actually version-exclusive styles. I didn't really go into this, but there are two versions of Mega Band Battle Network 3, blue and white, and each of these has some differences from each other. For instance, the gigachip list that is available in each game is different. The games have, like, different palettes for different areas. They look a little different. And white version has ground style, while blue version has shadow style. Ground style gives your buster the ability to crack panels to reduce enemy movement, and also, as you level it up, teaches you a bunch of navy customizer programs that allow you to alter the terrain automatically when battle starts. Kind of fun, very specifically strategic, as you might imagine, it's specifically for using chips that affect the terrain. Shadow style, by comparison, is based around using specifically like invisibility and counterattack chips, and makes it so that when you charge your buster and fire it, you actually go momentarily invisible and can avoid being hit by enemies. Although this also overrides your element's charge attack, so that may be good or bad. Okay, that's it for like system stuff to talk about. We are actually pretty much at the end of all the new things that this game is introducing, so let's go beat up Bubble Man and talk about the rest of the story. Bubble Man is not particularly difficult in his early forms, but he is annoying. He always hides in the back row, and a hole in the middle of his side of the arena perpetually spawns out little bubbles that track you down. Never ending, the moment you destroy them, more of them will spawn. You can pop them just with your buster, but even if you do that, those bubbles will then sometimes have counterattacks in the form of swordfish that fire out at you. Occasionally, Bubble Man will harass you with an attack from the back, but mostly this fight is just a being a pain in the neck about actually reaching and hitting him, rather than necessarily being hard. After defeating him, Bubble Man tries to cut a deal and trick Mega Man to delay just long enough for the bomb bubbles to go off in the real world, but before that happens, Proto Man appears out of nowhere, cuts down Bubble Man and saves the day, and tells Lan, like, hey, maybe don't be hesitant around criminals, maybe that'll screw things up for people. It shakes Lan up for, like, five seconds. Then we go to Chapter 4. Chapter 4 is primarily the events of the N1 Grand Prix. It's also sort of on the sideline about Chod and his father, as we finally bring him back into the fold, because of course Chod's here, like, in the finals of the N1 Grand Prix, and apparently absentee dads are something that Lan and Chod have in common, although at least Lan's dad doesn't seem to actively hate him, and is instead just not present. And maybe Chod's, like, whole super drive to compete and stuff and get stronger and be the best is maybe so that his dad will actually like somewhat respect him instead of just being an aloof company businessman. You get the idea. The amount of words I have spent on this already, like this is technically important to explaining Chod's character, but the amount of words I have spent on this is already about as many words as this whole dynamic gets in the game, so yeah. 
The actual tournament will take us to a place called Hades Isle, where we do sort of a televised pseudo-reality show where, oh no, maybe the losers of the tournament are getting dropped into hell. You can tell by the tone of my voice that it's very much not serious. Although, ironically, the one thing that ends up mattering from this tournament in the long run is that Yai gets injured here. Because, to the credit of Yai and Dex, they did actually qualify into, like, the top eight of this tournament along with you. They don't last, but they're there. We also get, in the process of this, to duel with a couple new navvies. One of whom I forgot to mention before and we're talking about now, which is Metal Man. Metal Man mostly has very straightforward and slow attacks, like winding up a big punch, or like firing missiles that lock onto your position. His attacks are very, very easy to dodge, except for the part where, perpetually throughout the fight, there's a gear moving back and forth on your side of the field, and that gear will get in the way to avoid his attacks. But that's the only real reason why Metal Man is particularly tricky, that and his high HP. The other boss of note is Chess Man. His operator, Tora, is around a bunch in the story, but doesn't usually matter much and is going to be forgotten about in future games, but he does sort of fill like another friend-slash-rival role throughout this game. Chess Man's deal is that he is the king piece hiding in the back, then he has two pawn pieces, which will slide around, get in your way, and try to attack you with swords, and a knight piece that will constantly be bouncing about your side of the field trying to land on you. As long as you are, like, hiding in the back of your area, Chessman can't do much to you directly, but the act of actually hitting him, you're gonna have to, like, line up a shot and lure his pawns out of the way in order to do that. When all is said and done, and we've cleared the Hades Island trial, and we return to the TV studio, everything finally comes out in the open. It turns out the N1's been a setup by the World 3 this whole time, and their grand plan is to force Chod to throw the match. Chod being, like, the one everybody expects to win, and they're doing this by holding Chod's dad hostage. And by making Chod lose to a World 3 plant, well, they're gonna show off the World 3 strength and demoralize the populace. And this leads to one of the funniest scenes in Battle Network history. Lan and Chod go up to the broadcast office in order to confront the perpetrator, and when Chod gets ready to basically hand over his pet and admit defeat, Lan runs in and shouts, Mega Man attack! and just throws his PET directly at the dude's head and knocks him unconscious. This gives Chod a moment to rescue his dad as the dude gets back up, and naturally he's ready for a fight, but rather than, you know, retaliating physical violence by just beating up a ten-year-old, we're going to duel with his navvy Desert Man. Once again, he's a boss who likes to protect himself, this time with destroyable little sand pillars that are easily knocked down, and his hands which actually make the attacks at you. The trick with Desert Man is that every time you damage him, he sinks into the sand on his side of the field and teleports out and moves somewhere else. So even more so than usual, multi-hit chips don't really work against him. Although, in a clever twist on the fact that it is desert, if you hit him with water attacks, he gets completely stunned by them and you can basically chain them together on him because he's made of sand and now you've just made him stiff and unable to move. Long story short, the dude gets arrested and because it turns out that, oh, you know, now they've been openly acknowledging on the air that this whole tournament was a World 3 setup, we don't even get our showdown match with Chod, and the entire N1 Grand Prix storyline is dropped, and we move on to Chapter 5, where the only thing that mattered out of this whole N1 Grand Prix debacle is the fact that Yai got injured, and that's going to send us to visiting her at 
the hospital. Now, of course, Yai is actually completely fine. But while running around the hospital, we meet our next major character, who is one of the most important characters that this series will forget exists in the next entries, Mamoru. Mamoru is a sickly child who is wheelchair-confined and has basically been in the hospital constantly since he's been three years old. But he takes a quick liking to Lan because he had watched the N1 Grand Prix and actually got to see Lan be cool and be a hero and kind of idolizes him as a result. He hides the exact nature of his condition for a while, but oh wait, first we have to run a bunch of errands for Tora, like literally go off and do four random fetch quest jobs in order to learn about like, oh actually Chad always trains, that's the big reveal, and oh, oh now we have to wrap up that story where like Dex is going to be moving away and it's this big emotional beat moment, but not really, it's just kind of rushed and all of a sudden, and I'm not making that up by the way, the game sidetracks so hard out of this scenario. It turns out Mamoru isn't just like temporarily like I said, he's been constantly in the hospital since he was three because he actually had the same heart condition that took Hub's life, Lan's little brother. In fact, it's kind of been a miracle it hasn't killed him up to this point, but that's mostly because of advances in medical science since Hub was born. In fact, the most recent advancement is a surgery that could permanently save Mamoru's life and finally let him out of the hospital, but after so many years and painful operations and, like, miserable medication experiences, Mamoru doesn't actually have the faith that it's worth doing. So Lan makes him a promise, once Mamoru is better, they'll have a proper net battle, because Mamoru's a fan. He even goes and gets Mamoru a rare chip to prove it, and this inspires Mamoru to actually undertake the surgery. And it is legitimately a really sweet scene where the fact that Lan has done all these good things is actually inspiring and mattering to other people, and there's a reason people really like this segment, especially because the emotional stakes for once are there when the hospital gets attacked, because of course it's going to get attacked. And I will say, it's in the dumbest way possible, because they decided to put a giant tree in the middle of the place that apparently is like, perfectly maintained by computers, so when the computer gets hacked, the tree goes haywire, and Mamoru's life is literally in danger because of a power outage in the middle of his surgery. This leads us to Plant Man stage, which sucks. Once again, we have one of those Navi customizer programs we have to slot in, and this time it's so that we can burn up fire elemental chips that we have in order to burn away trees and grass throughout the hospital computer in order to try to find switches and teleporters and stuff to let us proceed. And yes, I mean, you have to consume fire elemental chips. Just go online and get yourself a map. Save yourself the trouble. This section sucks if you are trying to do it through trial and error, because there is a lot of spots where you can consume a chip, and it will do absolutely nothing for you. At the end of all of it, Plant Man is at least pretty chill in comparison. He's fairly standard mobile, but the main trick is that most of his forward projectiles are kind of like deployed very quickly, and then fire off even if you counter hit him. They don't get stunned the way that most attacks do, which can make him a bit spicier to hit. 
that when he's low on HP, he'll even put himself up with, like, a regenerating barrier that you'll probably want to burn away with a fire chip, and will put down flowers on your side of the field that will occasionally attack the adjacent squares, limiting your room to dodge. But as long as you don't panic, he's pretty chill. In the end, we're barely able to restart the systems in time, and after the scare, Mamoru survives the operation and is told he'll be able to return home finally. He promises he'll net battle land someday and, like, bookmark that. As we head into Chapter 6. Chapter 6 is kind of the Freeze Man scenario of the game, or at least, like, I kinda gotta put it this way, it's sort of the first half of the Freeze Man scenario. Long story short, Mr. Match worms his way into Scilab pretending to be all reformed, because to be fair, he wasn't actually up to anything in the second game, and eventually earns Land's trust and gets Land to maybe accidentally plant a lot of things all over the internet, and especially in the Scilab, that end up causing the Scilab to set on fire, as well as most of the internet. And once again, we have Plant Man's chapter, but this time we're going around using water to put out fire on everywhere in the internet. We have to revisit every single area and do this in every single one. And then eventually, we have to chase Flame Man into this game's undernet. Like, it's not the big deal going there that it was previously. You just kind of get the pass at some point from one of the various side quests that you did, and you can go in there now. When we chase down and fight Flame Man, he's a nuisance of a boss. He has very straightforward attacks that are easy to dodge. However, also in the back of his arena are two candles. Depending on the color that these candles are lit up, they will provide various effects. Regenerate his health, adding additional obstacles to your side of the field to dodge, or, worst of all, making Flame Man straight up invincible. You'll have to damage these candles in order to put them out for a while, in order to damage Flame Man himself and keep them under control, and with Flame Man's fairly high health, this is the start of a difficulty spike in the game. All of the actually relevant story in this scenario happens. After fighting Flame Man, Base shows up out of hecking nowhere, deletes Flame Man, and comes at us completely invincible and will utterly smoke you because he's basically identical to the post-game boss Base, but it's just literally impossible to hurt him at this point. And yes, this this is the real base, not the copy that was fought at the end of Battle Network 2, but the one the copy was based on. We only get saved due to the arrival of a seemingly generic Navi who, well, we'll come back to that. Base gets called off by Wily, who appears to be very ready to reenact their grand plan about reviving something called Alpha. The part that we also forgot to mention in this, and the reason that all of this matters, is that our dad was kind of in Scilab when it caught fire, and that might have been, you know, Lan's fault? And so Chapter 7 begins on Lan being in a bit of a depressed funk. Lan tells Mile and Yai basically to go away and leave him alone. His mom's too busy looking after their father and, like, watching over him at the hospital, and even Mega Man's not getting through to him. It's actually Chod who really snaps him out of it by giving Lan something to do. Lan really wants to confess, like, hey, I'm gonna have accidentally helped World 3 to him, and Chod's like, I'm gonna pretend I didn't hear that. Here's what I need you to do. Because Chod being, you know, a big figure as an official net battler means he can't really go running around the scarier parts of the internet. He doesn't have the anonymity needed, which technically Mega Man shouldn't either. He was also a big deal in the N1 and beat up World 3 and all that jazz. And for some reason, he can still be pretended to be a nobody. And apparently, there's a secret weapon somewhere in the undernet that can be used to stop whatever the heck Alpha is, Wily's grand plan. But first, Lan needs to go make peace with his dad and apologize for everything that he put him through. That actually goes pretty well, as you might imagine. Dad, who has been completely supportive of his son running off 
into life-threatening situations before is pretty much like, yeah, this is par for the course for you at this point. You're forgiven. The more interesting part, here at the hospital, we also meet with Sean, the antagonist of Battle Network. Two. Basically, because of Lan's actions towards Sean, Sean's been working really hard to correct his mistakes and make up for it. Once again, Lan's actions have had consequence, and what Sean's been able to figure out with the help of the officials is that the people manipulating him were World 3. They needed base for something, and they were willing to accept a copy, and so they set up the whole of Gospel just to try to produce that copy. And the fact that, you know, Sean nearly blew up the world with Gospel and is now working for good again is what really, really snaps Lan back into, like, okay, I might have been making some mistakes here, but I've still gotta try. This is the good part of Battle Network 3's plot, is that this specific emotional core is based around the idea of Lan helping all these other people overcome their mistakes and their problems and inspiring them, and them coming back to inspire him. That's the good part of Battle Network 3's plot. The bad part of Battle Network 3's plot is that every once in a while, it shoves you into a filler section that amounts to absolutely nothing, as it's about to do with the second part of what is this game's freeze man scenario, the Undernet Rankings. In order to get the secret weapon, we need to meet with S, the entity who is apparently the ruler of the Undernet. In order to get S's attention, we need to rise up the power rankings of the Undernet, and this is basically side quest after side quest after side quest running around the internet. This is still fairly short compared to Freeze Man's scenario, but running around the internet was also what we were doing for the last chapter in Flame Man's scenario, and so this whole thing feels like one giant waste of time, other than the fact that we get to run around the internet a bunch. And to be fair, there are some new foes that pop up over the course of this. For one, a lot of these encounters work in Omega viruses, which are versions of the viruses that aren't even the post-game versions of the viruses, but only appear in these kinds of event battles, and will demolish you. They are very, very dangerous. Save constantly whenever you talk to an NPC in case they fight you with one of these. We also have to refight a couple of other navvies throughout the game, and even get introduced to a new one. And this is pretty much the other major difference between the two versions of the game. In the white version of the game, you will fight Mistman here, a genie-based navi. By the way, white version was the version that I played for this. We're going to cover him and what he does. But if you were playing blue version, you would fight Bowlman here, a bowling-themed navi who literally knocks around pins with his bowling balls and launches them into you. Mistman, meanwhile, is actually a magic lamp that continually summons a genie out to attack you. Sometimes he will cover your side of the field in poisonous mist that is slowly HP sapping if you stand in it, but if you stand next to it instead, it will turn into the genie and try to strike you suddenly. Not a terribly hard fight, at least at low levels, but it is a creative one. Finally, after reaching rank 2, we're granted the opportunity to go into the heart of the Undernet and go to its actual servers and meet, or at least hear the voice of S, Serenade. And they bestow upon us the Gigafreeze program that can apparently be used to disable Alpha. Oh, and also, we get to meet the administrator of the Undernet. Not the Navi, but the person controlling them, because it's Mamoru. Yeah, uh, turns out... Mamoru's dad was a science lab officer who built the Undernet, specifically in order to contain this super powerful program, because if something ever happened to it and it went off by accident, they needed it to be its very own, like, enclosed space so that the damage would be restricted just to that. But it turns out when you build a secret area of the internet that's really off from prying eyes, criminal elements will just kind of move in there on its own. 
Capping off this chapter, right after we get this Giga Freeze program, we have to go and fight Drillman, a Navi who has stolen Alpha from Scilab because apparently it was something Scilab had this whole time. Drillman is maybe one of my least favorite bosses in the entire series, or at least he's definitely one of the most frustrating. The basic idea is that he dives at you, pretty much never standing still, and you're trying to counterattack him while he's flying at you. The catch to this is that it's never just, like, him flying at you. There is a huge drill right in front of him whenever he's coming at you, and that drill will block any sort of projectile attack. You more or less have to customize your folder into something that works good against Drillman, or you're probably going to have a bad time, because most attacks are just useless in this fight. Not only that, but it's super hard. You have to be very quick on your reflexes to hit him, even in this first form. Never mind the upgraded higher difficulty forms. Yeah, no, Drillman hate this fight. Anyway, it turns out that this entire arc of doing the Undernet rankings and getting Gigafreeze and everything might have been interesting to tell the backstory of the Undernet, but it was for nothing in the plot, because Base shows up, retrieves Alpha, and we go to use the Gigafreeze on Base, and it turns out that Base can also safely handle Gigafreeze, negates it, and flies off with Alpha, meaning this whole arc has amounted to nothing. But at least we're at the final chapter. Now, the final chapter of Battle Network 3 accelerates really fast. Lan has a prophetic dream about Mega Man leaving, and also he wakes up to find out we're apparently under martial law because the World 3 is now such a big deal that that's a problem. And naturally, the military robots out in the street are coming under the effects of whatever the hell Alpha is, and Lan may actually get shot at for real and has to disable a gunning robot. I'll share you the details that we get from running around through a whole bunch of stuff, because again, there needs to be a little bit of filler before this. But Wily's plan this whole time has to be to gain control of Alpha. Alpha is apparently the primordial form of the net, the prototype that existed before the current Navi Explored one that exists as the game's world. It did not become the final form of the net, and instead remained a prototype because something about it allowed it to gain innate sentience, or not even sentience so much as instinct, to the point where it started to absorb all of the data that was being transferred through that early internet, shut everything down, and once it had finally devoured everything it could reach in that digital space, then it was able to be sealed away. The problem, naturally, is that this omnivorous blob of an internet would basically do the same thing if released onto the new internet, causing a complete global shutdown of everything to do with the internet, which is, in this world, everything. Oh, and by the by, Alpha was made by Dr. Light, not Dr. Hikari, our dad, but Dr. Light, our grandfather. And naturally, him and Wily were rivals, and half the reason Wily wants to set Alpha free is specifically to give a middle finger to his old rival. This leads us to finding and heading to Dr. Wily's base for the final showdown. There, our team of the usual suspects, 
or at least the guys, the girls get left behind in kind of a we-can't-be-responsible-for-protecting-you type of moment. But there we meet up with an unexpected ally, the scientist that I mentioned earlier that's in the background of a few things, who we finally learn is Dr. Cossack, who in this timeline is the creator of BASE. In a bunch of rapid-fire reveals, it turns out that BASE has been around as long as Alpha has. But when Alpha started going crazy, they didn't realize it was Alpha at first that was doing this, and BASE, as the first Navi created, was blamed for Alpha's crimes, barely survived the attempts at deleting him, and grew to hate humanity as a result. Cossack specifically designed BASE with the ability to, like, absorb data and learn from the things he defeated, which kind of makes BASE more of the actual Mega Man of this timeline. That's never actually going to be explored, but it's interesting. Oh, and also on this BASE is a machine that allows the user to jack in by putting themselves into cyberspace? Cossack uses this for basically a cutscene where him and Base have it out, and then he gets dunked on by Base and barely survives because if you die in the game, you die in real life. But actually, nobody's going to die in this. Asterisk. This leads us to the Wily stages, which are the final stages of the game. Fortunately, it is an actual stage segment and not just running around the internet for a fourth out of eight different chapters in this game. Here, we have to avoid cranes that will pick you up and drag you back to the start of the area. And also, if you don't have a specific Navi customizer program equipped, you can be attacked by alpha traps that are basically waiting around. But if you take the time out of your customizer to slot that in, you will be able to see them. Naturally, each leg also ends in a refight with a World 3 Navi from the past, so we get our complete boss rush. In the end, Wily has basically set himself up in a room that has no jack-in ports, and uses one of the, like, brain sync machines to send himself into cyberspace in order to revive Alpha. And given no other opportunity, Lan chooses to use one of those machines as well, allowing him to enter the internet for the final showdown. And there is kind of a cute little moment here where Lan and Mega Man actually get to, like, really meet each other face-to-face, -face, then it's kind of over because, hey, they've got things to do. So they synchronize, becoming effectively one, kind of like they did in the first game and stuff, in the second game, and now the third game, and we run across a very, very goopy net to Alpha's final seal. We're just in time to see the reason that they needed Base specifically, because it turns out Base's ability to absorb powers from things was the only thing that could break the final seal on Alpha. And now that Base has all this power, he wants to fight us. This is the Base fight again from Battle Network 2, but unlike Copy Base, this Base does actually have his 100 health aura, which can be regenerated, and a little bit more damage and speed. He is not the joke fight, that the copy base was. He's not a super boss, but he's definitely tougher, and maybe even could have qualified as the final boss on his own if this were Battle Network 1. Fortunately, you do get healed after this fight, so you just need to worry about making it out alive. After this fight, Wily's basically gloating about how it doesn't matter whether you were base 1, because Alpha's been set free and is going to, and then he just gets glumped by Alpha and disappears? along with base, and then Alpha's core awakens and we get our final boss fight with the giant slime monster that is Alpha. Alpha is easily the hardest final boss to date. 2000 HP. There's no gator unlike Battle Network 2 to trivialize that either. It's a lot of HP damage we're gonna have to deal. His attacks are somewhat more predictable and a bit less prone to overlap than Gospels were, but they can still be fairly tricky and you're going to have to learn them. A lot of them are very rapid fire attacks that require you to keep 
constantly moving in order to safely dodge them. The real brutal part of this fight, however, is the shield he has. Before you can damage the actual core, you have to wear down the body with attacks. If you have used the Navi Customizer to upgrade your buster enough, you can probably do it with just your buster. If not, you're looking at actively spending more chips to do damage to the core. Unlike the Life Virus in Gospel, where you wanted to basically play it safe until they dropped their defenses naturally and were vulnerable, you have to get aggressive in order to damage Alpha. You don't have a different choice. And that is the difficulty of this, as you are dealing with all these dangerous attacks while still trying to keep up the aggression on your end. Afterwards, as Alpha's core is destroyed, we find a door left behind. And going through it, we find a memory of the Scilab and Dr. Light, or at least what's left of his uploaded consciousness. He's able to confirm that in the state Alpha's now in, damaged as it is, it will eventually just fade naturally from the net. Humanity has done what they could before, and after talking with Lan a little bit, he says that he's very, very proud of the way that society has progressed and what his grandson has achieved. Lan and Mega Man, as a fusion, eventually have to start running, because, naturally, Alpha was a load-bearing boss. But before they can escape from the net, they also get swallowed up by the death throes of Alpha, and are cast into darkness. Essentially, Alpha's probably going to need a while to actually fade and die based on the information they just had. That's probably going to be too late, and Alpha's probably going to delete them before that happens, and for Lan, since this is his consciousness, that would kill Lan. So Mega Man basically overcharges his body to blow up a hole in Alpha so that he can get Lan's data out and back to his body, and after Lan's emotional protests, he wakes up sometime later with his friends back in the real world, making an escape from Wily's base. At this point, once they're back on the mainland, everybody's pretty happy overall. Dex comes back to Chisao, presumably being worthy of his praise now as a more skilled net battler. Chod gets to talk with his father, who actually gives him some praise for a job well done, and tells him what time dinner is at so Chod can actually come eat with his family. Hey, what the hell? What the hell? Like, I just gotta pause here. That's messed up that that was just something Chad was literally not allowed to do for most of his life. That apparently this is a big deal and an advancement in the relationship that Chad is now worthy of eating dinner with the fam- What the f- Oh, and relatedly on kind of a what-the-hell moment, Lan has to go tell Dad, like, Hey, uh, yeah, Mega Man sacrificed himself so I could get out, and Dad kind of regrets for a little bit, having made Mega Man, knowing that, like, oh yeah, I guess that means he could die, which is the thing that we've established for, like, three games, and we've sent them into danger tons of time, but, like, now that he's dead, maybe that was a mistake? All of this kind of ends on a sweet moment as Lan on the pier tries to make promises to Mega Man that, like, hey, you know, I'll face tomorrow, I'll wake up on my own, I'll get my life together without needing you to guide me every step of the way, and can't quite do it without breaking down into tears, only for all of his friends, most notably headed up by Sean and Mamoru, coming to remind him that, hey, he isn't alone. A sentiment that's kind of funny when you remember that Sean and Mamoru will be forgotten about for the rest of the series. Fast forward four months. Lan's due to enter sixth grade. As he heads to bed for the night, we overhear his dad and mom talking about how his dad has finally decrypted a note that Dr. Light actually had given to Lan, but that was coded up and secretive. And it actually led him to a hidden vault part of Alpha's data that was buried away. And we end the game as Lan is woken up by Mega Man again. Roll credits.
So, before we talk about the overall impression of the game, I do want to touch at least a little bit on, like, the post-game experience of this. I'm not going to do, like, a whole episode here. This game has an entire post-game again, and yeah, a lot of the things that happened in Battle Network 2's post-game have parallels here. We do get additional bosses, like we can go fight Proto-Man finally, and there's a whole post-game area like the World 3 area, known as the Secret Area, which is the core of the Undernet. It also has fights with Darkman, Yamato-Man, but now he's called Japan-Man, and of course there's a fight with Base as an additional secret boss. And there's a whole bunch of challenges you'll have to undertake in library completion and stuff to get access to it. In the depths of it, we also have an additional new super boss, who only appears in this game, we finally get to actually fight Serenade, which means that Lan and Mamoru technically actually do get their net battle as a secret super boss. I'm not going to detail these fights, just because this episode's already going long, and honestly, I haven't revisited them myself. At some point, I have to say, like, I can only play so much of these games and still get these episodes out. But the process of actually fully completing everything in Battle Network 3 is a little bit longer. In addition to, like, all of the job boards and stuff that was back in Battle Network 2, there's a bunch of extra side quests, things like going out and hunting down viruses in very specific locations in order to bring them back to a virus breeder and do this whole thing where there are variable power virus summoning chips that you can actually get in this game. Pokemon effect. Oh, and if you really want to continue really late into the post-game, you're going to have to trade with players of the other version of the game, because you need your library to have both the Mistman and the Bullman chips in order to fully complete your Mega Chip library. And also, it's going to be an extra pain in the neck, because if you want the version 4 Navi chips, which are now a thing, you need to beat the version 3 bosses in under 20 seconds as specifically team-style. But that's not the only requirement, because there's also chips that only drop from endgame viruses if you are in a custom style and get an S rank without using a Navi chip. There is a whole lot of stuff that is very impractical to get all by yourself. You're gonna want to have friends to work with. Of course, if you do go into it, this post-game does not stop at just Serenade and Base. There's time trials you can do, where you have to use pre-constructed folders against the version 2 bosses. There's the secret hub style to find. There's the Omega Navis to fight. The normal bosses of the game, but powered up even further into being their own super boss level versions of those fights. And they award giga chip level versions of the Navi chips. And there's even a souped up super boss version of Alpha itself you can go fight once you have done everything else. It's a big part of why Battle Network 3 is thought of so highly. This post-game is meaty, and it is huge. There's almost always some bigger, further, harder goal to reach, and I think it's the size of post-game that we'll only see in, like, Battle Network 5 and Star Force 3. If, you know, you can actually access all of it. The Legacy Collection has online play, which makes that possible. The Wii U versions of the game allowed you to use the network menu to get the version-exclusive stuff from the other version of the game, so you could do it that way. If you're playing on an actual Battle Network cartridge, well, get ready to suffer. This is where I have to tell a bit of a story. I was in the Battle Network fandom because of Battle Network 2 when it launched. Because, for whatever reason, the GBA was extremely easy to emulate, when Battle Network 3 came out in Japanese, I was playing it in Japanese along with the first wave of players. And despite the fact that I couldn't read it, you know, we were able to share enough information back and forth that I was able to get through the game and beat the whole game and do all the post-game. And at some point we realized the only way to complete the post-game was with a library code, literally cheating the game because none of us could find Bullman. Because when this game 
originally released in Japan, there was a period of a couple months where it was only the one version of the game. There was no way to get the other version's content, because nobody knew the other version was even going to happen. And so we spent months wondering if the game was just unfinished. No, it turned out it wasn't unfinished, just surprise, two versions of the game. And, uh, I have done my best throughout this to put aside that frustration from back in the day as I returned to this game. Because I've kind of always held a bit of a grudge over that. Like, yeah, I was on an emulator, I had a code, I was talking with people who had physical cartridges who were screwed at the time, but obviously that's become less and less of an issue these days. But the introduction of the version split and the additional inaccessibility that that added to the game is kind of a, I don't know, I feel like that is a good way to transition into discussing how I feel overall about Battle Network 3, because for everything that Battle Network 3 does right, the addition of the Navi Customizer, which is a fantastic little system, and I'm super glad it sticks. It updates the style system a little bit to be a better version than Battle Network 2. It adds a whole lot more variety of chips. It goes even further with a big post-game. And sometimes, its story even manages to actually hit some really good points. As the effective end of what would be a trilogy of games, they actually paid attention to continuity in this one and made certain things actually matter long term. They brought back Sean. They brought back, like, Hub's disease. They started exploring deeper, like, the backstory of, like, the Undernet, and at least tried to flesh out Chad's backstory. And, like, dug into, okay, what's the deal with base? He's been a super boss in two games. He's super powerful. Where did he come from? All of these things are good, but... Battle Network 3 also really pushed in some stuff that I think hindered the series for quite a long time after this. Yes, there's the Navi Customizer, but there's also the secret Navi Customizer codes in the Number Man Trader, which are extremely go-look-it-up-online-type information because it's not in the game itself. And I've never really fully liked that, and it's also really imbalancing because it's like, okay, if you know these things, you have access to power that completely unbalances the game early. There's the two versions thing. It will be done a little bit better in some of the future games, but also, it really didn't need to be done, other than just, hey, we want to sell more copies of the game, I guess. Like, here's a reminder of what's different. Some of the areas have a slightly different color palette. There's one version-exclusive boss, or like two, because technically Punk is an exclusive boss that only appears in one version, and also doesn't have any chip drops or anything like that, he's just an extra fight for the heck of it. And then there's like, some differently exclusive gigachips. But oh, we have to have two versions, and you're going to have to trade between two players, which makes it a little bit less accessible and completable. It didn't really advantage the game to do that. Also, for some reason, they looked at the Freeze Man scenario, the worst part of Battle Network 2, where you were just running around back and forth on the internet for an obsessively long section, and said, you know what? We'll just make three of our eight chapters of this game just running around the internet and doing side quests. There's less actual, like, stages, less dungeons than in either of the previous two games, and continuing to over-rely on internet filler segments is going to be a problem both for, like, this game and future games, and it doesn't just drag down the pacing of the gameplay, it drags down the pacing of the story. Like, as much as I have compliments for parts of Battle Network 3's story, the entire N1 Grand Prix section is nothing. Literally, the only thing that comes of the entire N1 Grand Prix of any consequence is that Yai gets injured, which gives us an excuse to go to the hospital. But it's constantly adding filler sections throughout the entire first half of the game as they build up to it as though it's going to be this big important thing. And just, mm, do I think Battle Network 3 is good? 
Yeah. Do I think it was an important step for the series? Yeah. Do I think it's the crowning jewel of Battle Network? I don't even necessarily think Battle Network 3 is better than 2 was, and we still have half the series plus all the spin-off games to go. Anyway, this has been Unpopular Opinions with Garlisle. Let's talk about the music. Battle Network 3 maintains the sound font that the previous two games have had, which is notable because that sound font's actually going to change when we go into the next game. But for now, it is maintaining the same sound font, the same feel. So here's just three pretty good tracks. First, I want to call out Flashman's theme. I don't know what it is about this first dungeon, but it's got a really catchy rhythm, and I like the way parts of it seem to fall and fade away, letting the piece be relatively minimal sometimes. Again, there's only like four actual stages in this whole game, so at least the ones that do exist got to have good music. Second, of course, is going to be the hospital's theme. It's the place in the game where the actual good stuff happens, and so fittingly, they actually composed a relatively subdued and pretty theme for it, and is probably one of the most memorable, like, overworld area tracks in the series. Finally, I would like to highlight Alpha's theme in tradition of the final boss tracks in Battle Network are always bangers. Alpha is a concept, as this just, the prototype internet was this all-consuming amoeba, is silly, but its theme song does a good job conveying that it is sort of this all-consuming eldritch horror-esque entity. I love the way that it almost sounds like the theme's about to get heroic and upbeat, but it's never allowed to get there, and it leaves it just a little unsettled.
Next month, we're going to put Battle Network aside, and I'm going to do something that isn't that, because I have a feeling I'm going to have to do like two or three Battle Network spin-off games in a row after that. So next month, we're going to be heading back to the traditional timeline, and I'm going to play Mega Man Zero Two. That should be really interesting. I remember nothing about Zero Two. It and three are a gigantic hole in my memory. I know I played them. I could not tell you what happened. So, on that note, if you liked what you've been hearing, waipf.podbean.com if you want to go and get a live feed or RSS, download the new episodes manually, or just follow on your podcast provider of choice. At what am I podcast for using the number four on Twitter, or if you want to say hi, just drop me a line. What am I podcasting for at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I've been Garlisle, and just remember the proto internet was a hungry, hungry amoeba, and if I know anything about the internet, that's someone's thing. <laughs>